The title of our message today is The Chain of Custody for the Gospel. A chain of custody is when you have evidence that you're submitting to a court. And along with that evidence, you have to give the chain of custody. The defense wants to look it over so they can see where the evidence was and see if there's any place they might be able to challenge if it was tampered with. So any evidence that is submitted has a chain of custody that is connected with it. Well, Paul is being accused of teaching a false gospel. There are people showing up where in the region of the Galatia, which is modern day Turkey, where Paul had preached the gospel. And they're saying that Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. They're attacking his credibility. He's really not an apostle. They're attacking the message that he brought. This isn't the same message the disciples are bringing. This isn't the gospel. They are legalists, which means they want to add to the word of God. They want to say, we, we do this in order to be saved. And we talked about this the last couple of weeks. Anytime anybody adds anything to the gospel, that is perverting it. When someone says, look, Jesus is enough, but you've also got to be baptized to be saved. Jesus is enough, but you got to speak in tongues to be saved. Jesus is enough, but you got to join this cult to be saved. Or Jesus is enough, and they wouldn't call themselves a cult, by the way. Jesus is enough, but you got to, you got to be a member of this church to be saved. Or you've got to be baptized in this way. If you were sprinkled and not dunked, or if, you were pour, if they poured on you instead of dunking you, you can't really be saved. All of that is a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul starts off talking about the chain of custody of the gospel. How did we get the gospel? Who was it entrusted to? How did it get from Paul to us? Now, we're not going to talk about all of those things today. We're going to revisit the chain of custody as we make our way through the book of Galatians to how it got to us and how we now have a responsibility to make sure that the gospel remains pure just as Paul did as well. But I specifically want to talk about the chain of custody before it reached Paul, where he found it at, looking back at the Old Testament. So what I want to do is take a look at this passage, which Paul's going to start to give his testimony, and we'll talk about the early beginning days of Paul. And then I want to look at, I've got seven, I think I've snuck in an eighth, uh, Old Testament passages that talk about the gospel. Remember, that we are told in, um, let's see if I've got it here. Nope. We are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, the gospel that I give you, which you've received, by which you stand, by which you are saved, and that you believe if you don't believe in vain. And the reason he said believe in vain is it's possible to believe that something happened, but not believe it and live for it. It's possible to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and not live like Jesus rose from the dead. And you've got, to, you've got to believe it to the extent that you live like it in order to be saved. And then he says these things, and he, he makes it very concise. The gospel's a little broader than this, but he gives you the essence of the gospel when he says that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That lets you know that something was told before. According to the scriptures, he died for our sins. Also, if he died for your sins, that means you had to have sin. You had to fall short. You were a sheep that had gone astray, Isaiah 43, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has gone to his own way. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had to die for our sins. 
So see, there's a lot of information in this concise little statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then he says, and that Jesus was buried and rose again as it was foretold in the scriptures. So he's always pointing back to the Old Testament. These things don't stand on their own. They are foretold. They were not made up by someone. And so Paul defends his position in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 1. By the way, Paul's not happy why he writes this letter. Paul has already been very sharp. I marvel that you have so quickly turned away from the gospel to another gospel. That is not another gospel. And I tell you, if anyone comes to you bringing a different gospel, let them be accursed. Even if we or an angel from heaven comes to you, let them be accursed. That precedes the statements we're going to read right now. Paul is not a happy camper as he, as he writes this. So in verse 11, he says, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which we preached, uh, which the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I neither received it from men, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's quite a statement for Paul to make. It didn't come from men. I was I was I, I wasn't taught it by anybody. I received it as a revelation from God. Now, Paul is an apostle, as in one of the official apostles. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that the church is built on the apostles and the prophets. That's either the prophets in the Old Testament or there were prophets in the early church, especially. I'm not saying the gift of prophecy is done because I think it works today, but there was a special role that prophets played alongside of the apostles and the church was built on that foundation so much so that the book of revelation tells us when the new jerusalem comes down from heaven that there are 12 foundations and the 12 names of the 12 apostles written on those foundations now the question is who's going to take judas's place if there are 12 names written of the apostles now an apostle simply means the sent out one but we know that the 12 apostles had a special position of authority that was beyond the sent out ones. There are certain churches today that use the term apostle for their pastor. Not, not a problem, as long as you don't think that they're one of the apostles. Then there's a problem. Or they're trying to get extra authority because they're called an apostle rather than something else. We know that there are other apostles besides the 12 apostles. Paul was had the received the the direction from God as an apostle which means that what he wrote he was under the inspiration of the spirit and God would give him a revelation I want to bring that up because when you read this you go well I want a special revelation from God I want to learn something that isn't from men isn't taught me that the that Jesus Christ reveals to me and I'm not saying it can happen. I'm just saying there's no way that you will know that it is really the word of God because of what he's already said in this book. If anybody comes to you teaching you anything that is different than what you've already heard, let them be accursed. That puts a damper on special revelation. We have biblical revelation through the word of God which the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, 
that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. Everything you need has already been revealed. Paul was one of those vessels which revealed it. Now, as I said, Paul is under attack by people saying that he doesn't have the authority. This isn't the gospel. There were people rejecting what Paul was teaching about the gospel. Do you know there are still people who reject him today? Do you know that there are groups who will only believe, only believe that the gospels are the word of God? Do you know that there are Christians who only believe that the letters in red are from God? They reject everything else. And do you know who those are that reject the writings of Paul? This isn't going to shock you. Are you ready for this? It's the legalists. They reject the writings of Paul because Paul clearly refutes legalism. He talks about our freedom in Christ. Don't let your freedom become an opportunity for sin, but use your freedom for edification. Use your freedom for Christ. Use your freedom to reach people. But he clearly, very distinctively refutes legalism, so much so that the legalists today say, we don't believe that Paul was inspired. We don't believe that Paul really was brought by God. So this section of scripture and that the gospel can be taught from the Old Testament is extremely important because we could say, all right, well, let's just not go to the book of Paul. Let's not go to any book that Paul wrote. What books do you accept? And if they accept the Old Testament, you can rebuild the gospel from the Old Testament. In fact, we are going to, these, these seven, I stuck in another one, eight verses that we're going to cover today that look at the gospel in the Old Testament are just the tip of the iceberg. You can dive so much further in and see that the entire gospel was foretold clearly. Not just the essence of it, like Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, but, but all that is, um, all that is spoken about as he gives that. So his first statement is a pretty strong statement. I didn't receive this from men. I wasn't taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. I do question special revelation today. I think that people that get special revelation have to battle against the earlier section of, of, uh, of Galatians, of chap uh, chapter one in Galatians. I think there's some difficulties with it. Although if God spoke to you, you know, and gave you a special revelation, if it isn't contrary to the word of God, if it's not anything new, then I think it could happen. I'm not going to call you a liar. I'm just going to go, we don't need it. <laughs> you got your special revelation, that's fine, but we don't need it because everything we need is in the word of God. So then he gets into his testimony. We're now going to spend just a few minutes talking about Paul. Paul was a contemporary, not just a contemporary, but born almost the exact time as Jesus. We believe that Jesus was born somewhere between 4 and 5 uh, AD, and, and Paul was born somewhere between 5 and 6 AD. So Paul would be about a year younger than Jesus. That's really interesting. We don't think about that too often, right? Remember, Rome is destroyed in 70 AD. Even if Jesus was born in zero, that would make him 70 years old if he survived, if, if, he, if he hadn't been crucified, resurrected. I just want to say that correctly because that's the kind of term somebody could say, did you hear what Robert said? Uh, 
So, that went, so Paul died somewhere around 57, 58, 59, being 57 or 58 years old, around-ish. So he's very much the same age as Jesus, which is really interesting. When Paul was a young child, in fact, I'm going to give you the breakdown here, and then we'll go back and we'll read what he says here. So um, Paul is born somewhere around five or six. Uh, he is born a Roman citizen, which means his parents own land in the area of Tarsus, and, um, or, or Troas, excuse me, uh, where he, no, Tarsus, where he was. And uh, he later on used that when a soldier was gonna, had him bound already and was going to have him beaten. Paul said, you're going to beat a Roman citizen? And the soldier was like, you're a Roman citizen? I didn't know that. I bought my citizenship. Paul said, I was born a Roman citizen. And the guy said, let me untie you. Let me go ahead and let you go. Because the Roman citizenship came with a lot. Uh, about 20 AD, which if Paul was born around, let's just say six, in 20 AD, he's four or five years old, right? Am I doing my math wrong? No, he's 14 years old, right? I was doing my math wrong. Shocking. I get math wrong. That's amazing. So he's about 14 years old. He goes to Jerusalem and he studies Torah with Gamaliel and he becomes a Pharisee. So that's between 20 and 30. Jesus begins his ministry in 30. So you see the way they're intertwining. Paul is there until Jesus' ministry began. When Jesus was around 12, Paul wouldn't have been there. Paul comes back and spends all that time there. Now, we don't know if Jesus made any trips between 12 years old and 30 years old to Jerusalem. We kind of assume that he did. So we could say that Paul and Jesus were in the city of Jerusalem at the same time. Paul was a Pharisee. By, by 30 AD, Paul then becomes part of, well, Paul then goes back home, stays there for four years, and then comes back to Jerusalem in 34. Jesus is crucified. Again, this is debated, the exact year, but somewhere around 32 or 33. So, so Paul becomes a Pharisee, goes back up into what is Southern Turkey today, is, does his Pharisee stuff there, and then comes back to Jerusalem and becomes part of the Sanhedrin around 34. So he is not there. Some people like to put him there, casting lots against Jesus and, and condemning Jesus, but Paul didn't. If, if he did that, the Bible would say it. That would make Paul's story even more powerful if he had actually condemned Jesus. He left there as a Pharisee in 30. Jesus' ministry began. He came back in 34. By then, Jesus has been crucified. Um, when he becomes, uh, he then, let's see, in 36... Actually, in 30, so in 36, 34 to 36, he's converted. He comes back to, in 34, uh, he's, he sees Stephen stoned. He's a Pharisee. He becomes part of the Sanhedrin. He is converted on the way to Damascus, and he immediately leaves. And for three years, he spends them in the Arabian desert alone. We don't exactly know what drove him there. Maybe he just wanted to go be with God. He knows the scriptures very well. Pharisees memorize entire books of the Bible. So maybe he just wanted to go and just settle in and really receive it, figure out what the, what the Old Testament said about Jesus, the Messiah, and about the things that he did. And so he goes into the Arabian desert. We assume this is where he receives in a supernatural way the, the, the message of the gospel. 
Paul then returns to Damascus in 36. So around 36-ish. This is all ish, okay? Um, so he returns to Damascus in 36. And he begins to preach. And immediately he causes problems because he's really good at proving Jesus to be the Messiah from the Scriptures. And so he says to the Sadducees and the Pharisees that Jesus is the Scriptures by the Messiah. They decide they want to kill him and they have to let him down through a wall and he flees because of persecution. He also, when he flees, meets with the apostles. He sees Peter. The rest of the apostles won't see him. He persecuted the church when he was still a Pharisee. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. They didn't trust him. They probably thought this is a trick. Yeah, right, he's one of us now. And they would not receive him. Uh, one, one guy I was reading today said that Paul wouldn't forgive him, that they wouldn't forgive Paul, but I don't think that's the case. I think they just didn't trust him. They were like, this guy condemned people to death. Later on, Paul would say, I cast my lots against Christians to have them put to death, which tells us that he was part of the Sanhedrin. That's how we know that Paul was actually part of the Sanhedrin. So he goes to Jerusalem. He's not really received by the apostles, but he spends a few days there with them. And um, he leaves, and these are the miss this is the missing decade. He leaves Jerusalem, not really embraced by the disciples, but having the gospel now, having this call of God in his life, when he, when he was converted on the road to Damascus, God told him, I have many things for you to suffer. Paul just goes back up to Tarsus, and he's there for about 10 years. Maybe he's preaching in the synagogues. Maybe he's just tent-making. Maybe he's, he's abandoned. He's probably abandoned being a Pharisee because he's not a Pharisee by the time that Barnabas finds him. So then Barnabas starts a church in Antioch and he realizes, I need someone else. I, and Barnabas had been the one to introduce him to the disciples 10 years earlier. And so the Bible says that Barnabas goes Paul hunting or Saul hunting, finds him in Tarshish, brings him back to Antioch. Paul begins ministering in Antioch and that's where they're first called Christians and then the, um, a prophet in Antioch or the prophets in Antioch say God has separated Barnabas and Paul to send them on their missionary trips. And so Barnabas, Paul, and John Mark start out on their first missionary journey. All right? So that's, that's the breakdown for, for Paul's life. Now listen to what Paul says in verse 13. Now he's going to kind of give his own testimony. I received the gospel from Jesus, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. The Galatians knew that Paul was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews from the Benjamite. They knew it. You've heard of my former conduct in Judaism. He's fighting against legalism. He's telling them, you guys know that I was steeped in legalism. He says how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That tells you the length that Paul went to. He persecuted the church in Jerusalem so much they fled. And when they fled to other cities, Paul got permission from the Sanhedrin to track them down in other cities, and that's why he was on his way to Damascus. By the way, Paul couldn't help but spread the gospel because when he persecuted the church, it caused the church to flee, and they took the message of the gospel with them, and surrounding regions received the gospel because of the persecution of Saul. He says, I am advanced in Judaism beyond my contemporaries in my own nation. Paul was, Gamaliel 
was a famous rabbi and Paul learned from him. And Paul says, by the time he's, he's 34 or he's 30 years oldish, right when he can become part of the Sanhedrin, he does. He achieved past the others in Judaism. He's not just saying, I was a Pharisee and I was in Judaism. He says, I excelled in it. He was like a scholar in Judaism. No wonder he knew the Old Testament so well and was able to plug it into words that would help us to really understand it. So he says, um, and I advanced in Judaism beyond my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. And isn't that interesting that the guy who becomes more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his fathers is the guy that's fighting legalism today for those who are zealous for the tradition of their fathers. In verse 15, he says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, he knows that God always had this plan for him to reveal his son to in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia. So he's saying, when I met Jesus on the Damascus road, when Annas prayed for me and the scales fell from my eyes in Damascus, I didn't go to Jerusalem and confer with the other apostles. I went to Arabia and he was there for three years. And then he says that I returned to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. So him and Peter hung out for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. James was the half brother of Jesus. And so he saw James and he saw Peter. He says, now concerning the things that I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterwards, I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. So he goes to Jerusalem. He's really not accepted. Maybe he's discouraged. He goes back to Tarshish. That's where he's from. This region of Syria and Cilicia, especially Cilicia, is right around the area where Paul was from. He returned home. These are called the 10 silent years for Paul. We don't know much about him. It's kind of amazing that after getting saved, spending three years alone, going to Jerusalem, he has another 10 years that he doesn't really do anything. I'm reminded of Psalms 1, where God says, meditate on the word of God day and night, and you will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that will bring forth its fruit in its season. There's, there is no one except Jesus, the Messiah himself, who has influenced Christianity more than Paul of Tarsus. No one. And God had him on the sideline for 10 years. Why do you think that is? I could speculate a little bit, can I? Can I speculate what God might have been doing? Maybe building character. Perhaps if Paul had been used to the extent that he was used right away, he would have become extremely arrogant. Maybe he needed to be knocked down. He, I'm sure he thought he had excelled in Judaism above his contemporaries. He had to think, stand back, apostles, here I come. You guys are going to be glad to have Saul of Tarsus on the team. I'm here. But God has a tendency to humble us because he knows that he has to develop character when he brings success 
Otherwise, there are major problems. And when I look back, even at the beginning of, of, of our ministry, the beginning of our church, there were some really difficult years. I had some really difficult years. And I look back at that and I think, you know what, God, that was just your plan. It wasn't that the church was growing because the church has always grown. But in the growing, there was some difficulties. It was like God would not let me settle in and let me get to the point where I was like, look at the church that I'm planning. Look at what God's doing through me. No, there was enough other stuff going along that the whole time I'm crying out to God and God just doesn't let me settle in. And I've got to think that's happening with Paul. God gives Paul an illness, a thorn in his flesh, an infirmity, he calls it. So don't tell me it's not an infirmity. He calls it an infirmity. The, he, the Greek word, we get infirmary from it. A thorn in the flesh, an infirmity sent from God to keep me humble. God refused to remove it, to keep Paul humble. And if you think, well, Paul really needed to be kept humble, trust me, there's none of us that don't need to be kept humble. Especially if you have achieved a lot in the world. If you're good at what you do and you can go out and achieve, Paul must have thought, man, I'm a believer now. I'm going to really rock these Christians' world. But he sat on the sideline for 13 years. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't do anything until for 13 years. It's he then says in verse 20, now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God I do not lie. Afterwards, I went into the region of Syria or Cilicia and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea and Christ. And I realize I read all that. It's just starting 23. But they were hearing only. They, they knew of Paul. Paul had such a, at this point he was so famous that they knew of him, but they didn't know what he looked like. So he was able to roam around with them, them knowing that one who had persecuted the church had become part of it, but they didn't see, know him by face. He says, um, but hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. Now that kind of tells me that Paul didn't really take his personhood with him when he was at those churches. He's hanging out with people in churches and they're saying, did you hear that the one who formerly persecuted us is now with us? And Paul's like, no, you're kidding me. Now, again, what God's doing in Paul, maybe, maybe being used in great ways really does take great, you know, great preparation. And that was what God is doing in him. And then he says, and they glorified God in me meaning that because Paul was humble, they saw him and they glorified God um, in the fact that Paul was now part of them without even knowing who Paul was because they hadn't seen him. And so then Barnabas goes and looks for him. Now that's the end of our text for today. A lot of lessons we can take from that, a lot of things that we can learn about the way that God used his life. But let me just take a few moments and talk to you about the chain of custody of the scriptures. And I cannot go into every Old Testament passage because there are too many. If you want to do this study on your own, what a good study to do. If you wanted to write a book, if you're like, I want to write a book, I just don't know what book I want to write. Then write a book about the gospel in the Old Testament. It'd be something that would be read and it'd be a great work. Maybe it's already written. I didn't really look. 
Um, so first of all, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 to what is called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto, meaning first, right? Prototype, it's the first of its kind. Proto-Evangelium. Evangelium in the, in the Greek is good news. So it's the proto-good news. It's the first time we see the good news in the Bible. And it, it fits so perfect because it follows the fall. Adam and Eve decide that they want to be like God. Satan, in the form of a serpent, tempts them. It says, if you eat this, you will be like God. You won't die. That was his sin. He wanted his throne to be above the throne of God. Today, there are false teachers who will teach that you can be gods. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Get away from those churches. You can be a God with a little G. You can create your own world. You can have what you say. You're like God. You can speak things into existence. Yeah, what I'm speaking into existence is that that's a lie. And you cannot be little gods. All right? <laughs> just, just in case you think you can. I probably don't need to tell most people here that, but you should know that. And so Adam and Eve eat it. They hide. They, they eat of a tree and they cover themselves with leaves from a tree because now they're embarrassed that they're naked. There's got to be something about that, right? They eat from the tree. They cover themselves with leaves from a tree. Jesus ends up dying on a tree for them. And God gives them the curse to the woman. I'm going to increase your pain in childbearing. By the way, the New Testament says women are saved through childbearing. And if you don't know what that means, it means that a woman would give birth to the Messiah and through the birth of a woman, the woman took the fruit and gave it to Adam. And through the birth of a child, through a woman, the Messiah would come into the world and save the world. Again, do you see all of the types and pictures that there are there? And he says that your desire is going to be for your husband, but he is going to rule over you. We'll deal with that at another time. I'm not even going to come close to touching that now. All right. But there's a lot of good stuff there. I promise you a lot of good stuff there. Then he says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, I'm going to curse the earth. It's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. It didn't before. Every time you step on a goat head and stabs you in the foot, you can have Adam to thank for that. And then he says to the serpent, cursed are you. You're going to go on the ground on your belly. So we take it that the snake before had some other form and that Satan, uh, Satan this arch enemy of God, had possessed that serpent something along those lines. And then he says to him in Genesis 3.15, this is in the curse of the snake. This is after sin. What does the gospel do? It takes care of sin. This is the proto-evangelium right after sin comes into the world. Sin came into the world and then the promise of the gospel came into the world. Pretty amazing, right? So Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. This doesn't mean that women are going to be more afraid of snakes than men. It's not what it means. He's saying between you, the demonic world, and the people, that, the people who are going to be born of women, there's going to be enmity. We are in a, a wrestling match against, not against flesh and blood, right? So he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, if I, could if I spent time telling you 
all the false doctrines that came from that one little section of the Proto-Evangelium between her seed and your seed? Oh, just think about it. If you were a cult leader and you wanted to look inspirational, like you had a lot of things you could bring in, you could say, let me tell you what the seed of the woman is that's going to have, that's going to fight against the seed of, of God. Uh, I mean, the seed of the devil to the seed of God. But who is the seed of the devil? It says again, and between your seed and her seed. So who is the seed of the devil? Listen to Jesus in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, he says to the scribes and Pharisees. Those that stand against God through false religions or through a perversion of religion are of the devil. You are of the devil. You're of your father, the devil. And the desire of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he was a liar and the father of it. So that's the descendant of the seed. Who is it that turned Jesus over to the Romans? And don't say the Jews. It was the scribes and Pharisees. It was the seed of Satan. You are of your father, the devil. He is the one, they are the ones that handed him over. And then he said this, Proto-Evangelium, this is Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Now we look back and see what it is. The head of the serpent is crushed. The word for bruised here is not really best translated bruised. It's the word for crushed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. When you look at the cross, you see the heel being crushed. You say it looks a lot more like that to me. Yeah, without the resurrection, it does. But when you see it with the resurrection, you realize it was a crushing of the heel. Listen to what Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says about the cross. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, that was contrary to us. There was a record that was against us and contrary to us, and he wiped it out on the cross. And then it says, and having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, at the cross, he took away the handwritten accusations that were against us, and he nailed them to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Now, anytime from now here on out, when you read the words principalities and powers in the scriptures, you know you're talking about the demonic realm. All right? You just got to know that. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and a spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. Princes and powers, principalities are the highest demons and angels. Powers are under them, I believe. Michael is called the great prince over Israel. Gabriel went to find against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. So these powers have powers over areas. And Jesus disarmed them at the cross. That was what happened with the, pro, the Proto-Evangelium was speaking of it. And I spent way too much time on the very first one. Said I wasn't going to do that. Let me give you the second one. We'll see how much time we have after that. Uh, Genesis 22, 18. Abraham is given a promise. Here's the promise. Now remember, the, the Proto-Evangelium says, your seed will have enmity with, with her seed and he will crush your head. So there's seed involved. What does seed mean? Descendants, right? We, we see that at the Proto-Evangelium. 
Now we get to this promise to Abraham in Genesis 22:18, and it has to do a seed. Listen to what he says. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because Abraham was obedient, God now said, your seed is going to bless all nations. Now, some say that's the nation of Israel. And they'll talk about the achievements of Jewish people, which is quite amazing, by the way. How many Nobel Peace Prizes they've won, how many things have been discovered by people who were Jewish. Judaism is really a gift to the world when you look back at all the things that they have done. I wouldn't argue with what they say there. I would just argue that not all the nations in the world are not blessed through Judaism. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3.16. We'll get there in a while. He said, now to Abraham and his seed were the promise where the promise is made. And in your seed, all nations shall be blessed. To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. So Galatians 3.16 tells us the seed of Genesis 22.18 is Christ. He didn't say seeds as the whole nation, but he said seed as to who is Christ. The third, I'm just probably going to do a couple more of these. I'll save the others for later. This, the third is what he talks to David about when he talks about a seed. I just kind of wanted to carry through that thought of the seed. There's a lot more places I could go between David and Abraham to talk about the gospel. So in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, God says this to David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's no doubt the promise to David is that his seed is going to sit on the throne forever. The fourth is Isaiah 53, 12. You may be familiar with this, that he would die for the sins of mankind. This is where, this is one of the passages where Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, that he would die for your sins according to the scriptures. It's part of the essence of the gospel there in those four verses. So he says in Isaiah 53, 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide a spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. There's the Old Testament telling us he died for your sins. That's just one passage out of many that do the same thing. The fifth, and this is where I may end, he would rise from the dead. That he was buried, he said in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, the essence of the gospel. He said he would be buried and he would be resurrected as it was written in the scriptures. So this is Psalms 16, verses 10 and 11. Psalm 16 is the verse that Peter used when he preached the first message after being filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved. And he said, this Jesus whom God has raised from the dead was foretold that he would not let his Holy One see corruption. And he quoted Psalm 1610. 
the very first message after the Holy Spirit came. Psalm 16.10 says, and 11 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Some of your Bibles will use hell. That's a bad translation. In fact, most of the places that hell is, is translated, it's a bad translation. Because hell, I'm going to do a teaching someday on hell. I promise. I've been promised that a long time. Death, Sheol is the grave. That's what Sheol is. It's the grave. In the New Testament, when Jesus, the word that he uses translated as Sheol is Gehenna. Gehenna is a valley that is by Jerusalem where the Canaanites used to put their sons and daughters on the arms of a burning statue and sacrifice them to Molech. And so Jesus called the valley that that happened in hell. It was as if he was hearkening to what happened to those children. So he called it Gehenna. When he said, it would be better for you to chop off your right hand than to go into eternity, to chop off your right hand and not go to Gehenna, than to, to go into eternity with the whole body. He didn't say hell. That's not the word. The word is Gehenna. Later on, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, which is hell. So eventually, the grave and the dead will find their way in hell. So when people say, well, are people burning in hell right now? No. Wherever they're at, whatever's happening to them, and there may be some torment involved with that, it's not hell. Why am I taking my time to do this now? I don't know. I want to teach that message on it, but that's just a little bit of clarity, all right? Uh, hell is in the future. Everything's going to be thrown into there after judgment, and hell is made for Satan and his demons. Doesn't mean humans won't be in there, but God didn't make hell for people. It's just a point of clarification. How much time do I have? Not much. All right. So, um, for he will leave my, my soul in Sheol. Talk about a rabbit trail. You'd think at some point, after 40 years of ministry, I'd stop rabbit trails. You would think that, but you would be thinking wrong. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's the part that Peter quoted. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand is the promise of pleasure forevermore. Let me read you the six. I'm going to go through these other ones quickly. I just want you to hear them. This is Hosea 13, 14. God, in essence, declares war on the grave. He says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave and redeem them from death. Again, some of your Bibles are going to read hell when it says grave. It's not a good translation. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol and I will redeem them from death. I will ransom. What, is, what do you do when you ransom something? You pay for it. What do you do when you redeem something? You get something back that was yours. I will ransom. I will redeem from the grave and from death. Oh, death, I will be your plague. God promises death. I will be your plague. He is going to destroy death. I will be, um, I will be your destruction. Uh, oh, then he says, oh, grave. This again is not hell. This is grave. Oh, grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. God says, I will take no pity on death. I will destroy it. I will take no pity on the grave. I will destroy it completely. The seventh is that Jesus is anointed as the son of God. And this is in Psalms 2, verses 7 and 8, where it talks about the Holy One being anointed by God. And then, then in Psalms 2, talking about the son of God, he says, I will declare a decree. The Lord has said to me, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is Psalms 2. It's the Old Testament. You ask of me and I will give you the nations as an inheritance and the end of the earth as its possessions. No wonder when they asked Jesus, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, it is as you say. They got so upset. But Jesus added one more thing. And from here on out, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of glory, given power and dominion forever and ever. They screamed blasphemy and tore their clothes. Psalms 2, 2 uh, 10 through 12, is the same passage that talks about God giving a son a kingdom forever. In Psalms 2, 10 through 12, it says this. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Severe, uh, excuse me, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish on the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Here we have the picture of God's wrath being upon people, the son taking God's wrath, you kissing the son, having affection towards the son so he is not angry with you, receiving Christ as your savior. These are just small little portions of the gospel throughout the Old Testament. In other words, there's no way they could say Paul made it up. Paul found it. It was given to him by Jesus Christ. He went back and looked through the scriptures. I think when he says it was given to me by Jesus Christ, he doesn't mean that Jesus came to him and said, this is the gospel. I think he looked it up and I think God spoke to him. Now, maybe he stood by him. He did it after that. Jesus stood by Paul, talked to him. But I think that Paul searched the scriptures, found them and was able to go to anyone and talk to them about it. And I think that you and I should search the scriptures as well, that we should know them enough, that we can know these things and be able to defend our position because there are more legalists today than there were in the days of Paul. In fact, there are far more legalists today than there were in the days of Paul. And they're trying to steal your liberty, just like they were trying to steal the liberty of the Galatians. Stand with me with you and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the time that we can spend here today. Thank you for your word, which is so rich. Thank you for calling Paul and giving him the talents and the gifts that he had and using him for your glory. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us now. Give us boldness, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.